I'm delighted to welcome you back on another glorious Danish October afternoon. And um, it is my pleasure to uh, ask Richard Brightman to take the floor and uh, take, uh, take it away and take us across the Atlantic uh, and uh, tell us how our friends on the other side handled the issues that Europe was cha challenged by and how America delivered and how America lived up to, should I call it, just for the sake of discussion, the golden standard that were in the golden standard in humanity uh, that was set by this little country uh, uh, that showed it through the rescue of uh, the Danish Jews. The interesting thing to me is that the more time that passes since those events, now 70 years, the more we discuss what happened, the more we learn, it seems that more questions keep arising from the discussion. It's kind of a bottomless uh, discussion, and I think that is good. That's a healthy process. Uh, we don't want uh, to reach a point where we uh, see standard answers to the questions that have arisen along the way. Now, uh, without further ado, and without further introduction, because uh, many of you will know who Richard Breitman is, and uh, at least you have his biosketch in the program. So, Richard, the floor is yours. And the program is very simple. Richard will talk, then we will talk together with each other, and then we will open for, uh, for questions and discussion uh, with us all. Thank you very much. When I uh, look at the organization of this conference, I have no difficulty imagining how Danes were able to quickly organize the rescue of uh, Jews in October 1943. Uh, in view of the prominence of uh, journalists here and in the audience, I, I should admit that I once did work for a newspaper in Connecticut. Uh, I was only 20 years old. It was a summer job, and I wrote mostly local news. So I don't think it has determined my interpretation of history or politics, but perhaps it made me aware of the importance of deadlines. And so, Stop price just went up. <laughs> 20 minutes. Uh, the American experience, of course, was quite different. Uh, Few Americans were in any position to rescue potential victims of the Holocaust directly. Uh, one organization with good reach in Europe was the American Jewish Joint Distribution Committee, which distributed relief. Uh, let me take us back to the period before the war and then move into the war and the Holocaust. American government policy uh, in the 18 months before World War II began actually responded to a refugee crisis. The response was not adequate to the dimensions of the crisis, 
but it could hardly be so uh, given existing immigration laws, attitudes in Congress, and I have to say, attitudes among the American public at large. In other words, government policy during this time period was uh, using the terminology of this conference in advance of civil society. There were liberal organizations and Jewish organizations which worked to bring progressive changes, but they worked at the margins of government policy rather than directly challenging government policy. But the outbreak of war transformed the situation. Rapid Nazi victories convinced many Americans that Nazi propaganda and espionage had eaten away resistance in Europe and that some of the same factors, including a Nazi fifth column, were at work in the United States. And so American fears turned refugees into potential Nazi agents. American anti-Semites, and there were a good number of them, were willing and eager to believe that Jews spied for the Germans out of pure greed. Others, including the President and his Secretary of the Treasury, uh, Morgenthau, who was Jewish, thought that Nazi Germany was coercing some refugees into becoming spies by virtue of threats against their relatives in Germany. The climate towards foreigners, and particularly towards refugees, resembled that climate after September 11, 2001. And so liberal American initiatives vanished. The State Department issued new regulations and created a bureaucratic labyrinth that screened out most of those who were still able to emerge from Axis territories. New security-minded officials, most notably the Assistant Secretary of State, a man named Breckenridge Long, uh, enforced regulations rigidly. Security was the primary motivation, but there were also political considerations. Once President Roosevelt decided to run for a third term, 1940 was a presidential election year, and the administration could not afford cases of refugee spies or Nazi agents posing as refugees. The Republican isolationist right before and after the 1940 elections attacked the administration as overly dependent on Jewish influence and claimed that American Jews were trying to drive the United States into a war that was not in American interests. This was the political climate in which information about what we call the Holocaust, a term that was not commonly used at the time, began to emerge in the second half of 1941. Initially, there was a weird combination of a fair amount of information, 
and little impact, except in the Jewish press and certain Jewish audiences. In the fall of 1941, American newspapers and some radio still had correspondence in Germany because the United States was not in the war. They were able to pick up information about German campaigns in the East. For example, on October 28, 1941, the New York Times published an article. Headline, Nazis seek to rid Europe of all Jews. That reads like an alarm to us, but of course there were various ways to rid Europe of Jews and it did not inspire much alarm. There was nothing yet about extermination camps. In fact, there were yet, as yet, no extermination camps. There were only incidents of mass shootings and deportations. After the Japanese attack on Pearl Harbor, Germany declared war on the United States, and suddenly the political problems of the administration convincing the American people that the war was in American interest, those problems uh, diminished and almost vanished. But there was another problem. The question was, given the administration's decision to emphasize the war in Europe, to give it priority over the war in Asia, how was that to be justified? The Japanese were the ones who had attacked the United States. And how could the United States, which was just gradually beginning to build up its military strength, uh, an aside, uh, in 1940 the Belgian army was larger than the American army, uh, how was the United States to exert influence? Psychological warfare was one area that people thought of, but when you get onto psychological factors, uh, government officials assumed that many Germans were saturated with Nazi propaganda and were therefore anti-Semitic. And uh, what turned out to be the first military campaign was going to be in North Africa. That was an area with a large Muslim population. And these factors militated against emphasizing Jewish issues. And it was the general attitude of the Roosevelt administration that Nazi Germany was a threat to all civilization and therefore it would not be wise to single out the threat to the Jews. A government committee on war information policy discouraged the use of what it called atrocity material at home unless it directly illuminated the nature of the enemy. The most ambitious domestic propaganda initiative, a documentary film series called Why We Fight, released gradually from 1942 to 1945, barely touched on Nazi killings of Jews. So, Americans who gave special emphasis during the war to 
the Nazi war against the Jews. We're fighting against the current that the government was promoting and the dominant current in the mainstream media. I'm going to give you a few examples of such activities. One loud advocate of public protest was a young Palestinian Jew who came to the United States in 1940. His name was Hillel Cook, but he took the name of Peter Berkson uh, in the United States. At first, he tried to use newspaper articles and advertisements to raise American support for a Jewish army in Palestine. Although some mainstream American Jewish leaders supported the idea, they could not stomach Bergson's uh, harsh attacks on British policy in Palestine because Britain was first a potential ally and then an actual ally. And they didn't particularly like the medium of uh, newspaper advertisements. They wanted to lobby with government officials instead. Um, The first mass demonstration against Nazi killings of Jews that I know of came in July of 1942, a rally of 20,000 people in Madison Square Garden organized by the American Jewish Congress. B'nai B'rith, and the Jewish Labor Committee. The president sent a delicately worded message. He said, Americans of all faiths shared in the sorry of Jewish citizens over Nazi savagery against helpless victims. That was a broad term, helpless victims. The Nazis, he continued, would not succeed in exterminating their victims or in enslaving mankind. So Jews were linked to the general threat. Nazism was a threat to all of the West. Critical information about the Holocaust emerged from Europe in the late summer and fall of 1942. I think In the interest of time, I'm not going to give a lot of details here. You can ask me about it afterwards, but uh, I will say that I think the two critical pieces of information came from Gerhard Riegner in Switzerland in August of 1942, and then Jan Karski. in uh, late November of 1942, arriving in Britain. And by that time, the Riegner telegram had been investigated. And so the two things uh, came together uh, more or less at the same time. So there was now clearer intention, clearer evidence of Nazi intentions, that there was a Nazi policy from the highest levels to eliminate the Jewish people of Europe. And Rabbi Stephen Wise of the American Jewish Congress uh, and a number of other uh, leading Jewish representatives were able to meet in the White House with the president to present some of the evidence, which the president said he was familiar with. Whether he really got it at that point is another issue. I think it sort of emerged gradually during the next year. but they did have a meeting. And um, there were 
additional newspaper articles after that meeting and after a December 17th statement by the Allied governments that Nazi Germany was waging a war of extermination against the Jews. Uh, there were rallies, there were protests, um, but there was a question of what could be done beyond raising public consciousness. American and British governments remained focused on winning the war as quickly as possible. And when they decided to hold a refugee conference in April of 1943, uh, a lot of people suspected that this was partly to diffuse public pressure rather than to come up with any large solutions. Uh, another assistant secretary of state gave evidence to support that view in May of 1943 when he gave a speech in which he said that Germany had organized a campaign of national murder that was unprecedented in history, but that nothing, I'm quoting, nothing can be done to save these helpless unfortunates except through the invasion of Europe, the defeat of German arms, and the breaking of German power. There is no other way. Well, there was no other military way, but of course there are things to do other than uh, military action, and um, some opportunities went begging. Um, in view of the setting and the conference, I want to raise uh, some Scandinavian issues. In April 1943, the Swedish government approved a proposal to try to persuade Germany to release Jews without ransom payments. Sweden offered to take in 20,000 Jewish children uh, if the Allies were willing to pay to maintain them in Sweden and guaranteed that they would be removed at the end of the war. Neither the American nor British governments offered the required guarantees. Also, the, if Germany was determined to pursue the final solution, uh, as we've already heard, some of the satellite uh, governments were not so determined and were more amenable to pressure as, as well as to the possible infusion of relief. So there were some opportunities that went begging uh, in this period after December 1942. In July 1943, um, a man named Samuel Grafton, the associate editor of the New York Post and a syndicated columnist, um, wrote a scathing critique of contradictions in Allied policies toward the Jews. When the Nazis gassed Jews in execution caravans in Poland, he called them. The world considered them a special problem and allied warnings against gas warfare did not apply. But when the allies considered questions of rescue and relief, they considered Jews part of a general problem, civilian suffering, and the only solution was military victory. Grafton wanted a new government agency that would undertake uh, special measures. And 
ultimately the um, United States Treasury Department picked up this idea and ran with it, but not until they had gathered enough evidence that the British government and the State Department were, uh, rather than assisting rescue and relief, uh, frustrating, uh, systematically frustrating rescue and relief measures. And in the case of the State Department, even trying to cut off some of the, the flow of information about the Holocaust out of Switzerland. On September 29th, the Danish minister in the United States had, who was in New York at the time, had the Danish counselor of legation warn the American government that Germany was about to round up and deport Danish Jews. Note the timing. In advance of the action, uh, he asked for American assistance and the Danish legation would be glad to cover the cost. The American minister in Sweden was sympathetic and continued to follow and report on the situation as it unfolded, giving Swedish understanding or interpretation of Nazi measures. Unrest and sabotage in Denmark had made Hitler aware that the Jewish question in Denmark had never been solved. But of course, the answer from the Nazis was not to deal with specific Danish conditions, but rather to apply the general policy that the Nazis had. By November 1943, the president told State Department officials that he thought the government should be doing more to save Jews. But still, nothing happened until officials in the Treasury Department forced a showdown with the State Department and then brought about a meeting with the President. One Treasury official drafted a report which he entitled On the Acquiescence of This Government in the Murder of the Jews. The Secretary of the Treasury changed the title but presented the report to the President and that meeting was enough to persuade President Roosevelt to establish a war refugee board, which in the last year and a half of the war is credited with saving approximately two, or helping to save approximately 200,000 people. Uh, most of you are already aware that Raul Wallenberg was operating in Hungary with the support and the funding of the war refugee board. So I'm not going to go into the details of that story. Um, are there lessons to be learned in this um, American uh, perspective? Uh, there are hard-fought lessons. Uh, some people have raised the issue about history and learning from history uh, earlier in the conference. I guess my answer, my quick answer to that question is, we don't have a choice. We all operate based on our past experiences. We do it instinctively, and the only question is whether we will do it carefully and thoughtfully and knowledgeably, or whether we will do it in a haphazard manner. So what can we say? Well, obviously, rescue was, early, was easier before war began, when there were signs of danger, 
um, but there were no wartime battles obstructing uh, civilian humanitarian action. But getting a political consensus for rescue before there is catastrophe is usually more difficult. Individual initiatives mattered both before and during the war. And the more organizations involved in rescue and relief fought each other, the less efficient they were. The response of the War Refugee Board during the last 18 months of the war uh, in past decades has been described as too little and too late. But in view of our failure to respond to genocide in more recent decades, uh, saving 200,000 people doesn't look so bad. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you, Richard. Um, Well, thank you for, for this presentation that gave, uh, uh, I think, a lot of food for thought and probably also discussion. What stands out from what, what you have said is that we're looking at the eternal American dilemma, uh, the country that wants to see and perceive itself as the shining city on the hill, and in this case, the shining city, uh, the shining city of humanity uh, on, on the hill. Uh, and we have, through history, often uh, seen how America wants to do the right thing uh, and does act with the best intentions. Uh, but as a result, uh, very often it messes up and uh, terrible things come out. Uh, with the best intentions again. Um, and as I listened to you, uh, I saw uh, the picture that you, you painted of America at that period. Is that an American would recognize from today? Uh, um, America with its, with its high aspirations um, to meet the highest moral standards, uh, to be an example, to lead, uh, and at the same time an America that is torn between uh, its own conflicts, both uh, political, uh, cultural, uh, uh, you could call it the American demons, uh, like racism, anti-Semitism, as you mentioned that comes across uh, with those good intentions and that contradicts uh, and prevents the well-intentioned part. Uh, and it is a, a dynamic, a political dynamic that is uh, quite different from what we know here. So after all, what you ended up by saying, well, 200,000 rescued in that hellish situation you didn't use the word, but it's very often used uh, through the fog of war and the distance. What did they know? 
the eternal questions. When did they know it and what did they do? As I gathered from what you said, there were two uh, sort of key uh, dates, 1941, the second half of 1941, and 1942. At that point, they did know there was the evidence, both in the public domain and one has to assume that the American intelligence services were not asleep uh, by other names than we know today, probably. Uh, but they were, they were, they should know. And pro I wonder, and that's one question I want to get to, uh, uh, has the most recent uh, research and your access to the archives revealed that the intelligence services actually knew more than uh, was known in the public domain at that time and later. Have you gotten access to more, rec more recently access to knowledge that shows and paints a different picture than uh, we previously knew? But first of all, I would like to ask you the sort of the simple question out of the sort of the moral context. After all, did America deliver on, on, this, uh, on this question, on these demands, on these challenges? Did they live up to what they should? No, America didn't deliver, uh, but America didn't entirely fail to deliver either. America uh, came late to the job, and the War Refugee Board really did, given its uh, timing and its limitations, uh, deliver a fair amount. Uh, you know, I, I've just uh, written a book about FDR, and um, my co-author and I talked about four Roosevelts. Uh, Roosevelt was president for a long time, and he was a, a master politician who adapted to circumstances, and circumstances changed. And so we saw the second Roosevelt, the second term Roosevelt, as one who did more than we were aware of in the way of humanitarian actions uh, in the period from 1937 to uh, at least part of 1939. And then the fourth Roosevelt was the Roosevelt who established the War Refugee Board. In between the first Roosevelt, the third Roosevelt, you don't see much. And you don't see much in part because of uh, constraints, but it's also Roosevelt's reading of a particular situation. Uh, there's, there's an irony with Franklin Roosevelt that uh, in, in last decade, the last few decades, both uh, American Jews and a number of academic historians have been extremely critical of Roosevelt. And in his own day, Roosevelt uh, won the vote of more than 90% of the American Jewish public. And so, uh, you know, there, there's, a, there's a puzzle there. And uh, American Jews in that day saw many of the problems and the constraints and the level of anti-Semitism. And we, looking back from today, tend to forget about it and not... Um, credit uh, good intentions when there were good intentions. Mm -hmm. And when there were, when there was a shift of policy in the wrong direction, Roosevelt was at least marshalling a coalition against Nazi Germany 
which was not something that the Republican Party uh, was particularly eager to see. So American Jews looked at that and gave Roosevelt the benefit of the doubt. Later, when we learned about the flow of information and uh, what options there were for rescue that were not covered, people became more critical, but in some ways the, the pendulum has gone too far and we tried in our book to, to bring things back to the center uh, to your specific questions. So, first timing and then intelligence agencies? Yeah. Okay. Um, the information that came out in the second half of 1941 was neither specific enough nor, what shall I say, uh, dramatic enough uh, to convince people what Nazi Germany was doing. Of course, uh, you know, there are historians today who say Nazi Germany hadn't determined what it was doing uh, with regard to all of European Jewry at that time. I'm not among them, but that's another a story for another conference. Um, so it didn't really register. It didn't register with government. It didn't register with the public even the people who read the New York Times. The New York Times was not particularly good in covering the subject, that's another story. But the Jewish press was more specific and more concerned. But, you know, many millions of uh, Americans did not read the Jewish press. That was a small uh, audience. 1942, the fall, summer fall of 1942 is a different issue, and that's when the information became more dramatic and more specific, and that's when it should have made a greater impact, but the reaction of Sumner Wells, the Undersecretary of State, uh, when he read the Regner telegram was, this doesn't make any sense, the Nazis need slave labor, why should they be killing millions of Jews? And Sumner Wells was not only the number two man in the State Department who was actually a little stronger than uh, his boss, uh, he was Roosevelt's man in the State Department. So when we don't have direct evidence about Roosevelt, we look at Sumner Wells and say this is probably what Roosevelt thought. So that was the initial reaction to very specific and dramatic information. And it took a while. Uh, the State Department conducted an investigation and drew upon sources in Europe and tried to get information unsuccessfully out of the Vatican. And eventually Wells called Rabbi Wise back and said, our information confirms your deepest fears. That was late November 1942. So one person and the now you can extend it to the president, uh, at that time had some grasp of what was happening. Intelligence agencies. Mm -hmm. um, you know, I, I've had the uh, experience of uh, being involved in a special declassification program uh, of almost 10 years uh, looking at largely intelligence documents, 99.99% of which are now open and available to the public. 
And the information there was not much better mm-hmm. than uh, one could find in the press. It was uh, occasionally very uh, sharp and clear, but there were so many intelligence reports that you had to be uh, very clever to pick out the right ones and say, this is authentic, this is, this is accurate, and there were a lot of bad intelligence reports. So, um, uh, you know, I, I've had the experience of arguing with veterans of the Office of Strategic Services who served there, saying, we didn't have any information about the Holocaust until, you know, maybe 1944. Well, it wasn't true. They did have information. It was in the files. But it may have been literally true that these particular people never got those particular reports and never actually realized it. They weren't much better. Um, One of the paradoxes uh, is that we shouldn't forget that America has delivered on so many, in so many other respects, and uh, Europe and Europeans have an awful lot to be uh, thankful for that uh, America did uh, act, and uh, both in, in the past and in more recent history, uh, and did come to the rescue. Uh, one of the questions that keeps popping up, and you know, as a result, um, uh, Europeans often uh, tend to hold uh, the U.S. to a higher standard than themselves uh, and expect America to deliver more than they delivered. One of the questions that keeps popping up is the issue, uh, the question of uh, bombing the, uh, the concentration camps, Auschwitz, or the tracks. Is that, was that really an option, or is that one of history's uh, legends? This is a long, complicated story that I'll try to make short, (laughs) and if I don't do enough, uh, you can ask from the floor for me to go back. Um, So, the extermination camps, except for Auschwitz-Birkenau, had all been shut down by 1944. It was not possible to bomb the um, extermination camps uh, until the middle of 1944. The American bombers didn't have the range to fly there and fly back safely. Uh, Once they had conquered a base in Italy in the spring of 1944, it it began to become uh, feasible. And in fact, they were Uh, beginning in the summer of 1944 to bomb uh, strategic targets in Silesia, the area in which Auschwitz-Birkenau was located. But note the timing. This is the summer of 1944. The substantial majority of victims of the Holocaust had already uh, been killed. Um, And all of the other extermination camps had been shut down. The Nazis were doing other things. They were still shooting Jews and uh, starving Jews, uh, but Auschwitz-Birkenau was the only one that was still gassing Jews. There were proposals coming from different sources uh, going to the War Refugee Board to bomb the rail lines and the gas chambers and crematoria. The War Refugee Board had a problem. When it was established, 
the understanding, especially with the War Department, was that it would not ask for military resources to try to save people. The military's job was to win the war and stop the suffering for everybody. The War Refugee Board's job was to figure out ways to save the lives of Jews and other civilians threatened through non-military means. So first, they wanted to investigate whether this would do any good. And they checked out bombing the rail lines and found quickly that the Germans were repairing rail lines, rail damage, within a day, sometimes within hours. So that was off the table. It wouldn't do any good. They couldn't possibly go to the War Department and ask for that, given how futile the notion was. Bombing the gas chambers and the crematorium. That, there was an official of the War Refugee Board who, who uh, backed that idea because they were taking a horrendous toll every day and you would lessen the efficiency of the killing if you succeeded in destroying them. And so the head of the War Refugee Board, a man named John Pele, took the request at the end of June to the War Department and it uh, reached the desk of the Assistant Secretary of War, John J. McCloy, who quickly, almost instantaneously said, no, this would divert resources from the war effort. The operations people in the War Department were even more emphatic that this is not the kind of thing that the War Department and the forces in Europe should be doing. Uh, Pele tried a couple more times later when they had more information about exactly what was going on in Auschwitz and got the same response in virtually the same language. So, um, what is my attitude? Uh, this would have been a good thing to try. Uh, I really don't have the technical expertise to say they could have done it or they couldn't have done it. You, you know, we have stories of strategic uh, uh, bombing much, you know, in the 1990s that was not so good. And uh, go back 50 years, you create uh, a much greater level of uh, inaccuracy. But um, it would have sent a moral message. It would have made a statement. And had they succeeded, it probably would have saved lives. But remember the date and the Nazis had shot Jews before they started gassing Jews. The Nazis shot Jews after they gassed Jews. This would not have ended the Holocaust. This was not, what shall we say, a magic bullet to, to stop the Holocaust. It, this would not have persuaded Nazi Germany to change its policy. It would have been a good thing had it been achieved. I, we did uh, take a stand on what would Roosevelt have done if the issue had ever arrived at his desk? There's no evidence that it did. There's, it's unlikely, given the chain of authority, that it did because it never got to the Secretary of War who kept a very detailed diary. Um, we think Roosevelt would have rejected the idea because it conflicted with the general policy of winning the war as quickly as possible. He didn't like to overrule military 
officers on the best measures to win the war. And none of the American Jews with whom he was close were aware of the specific option and pushing this as a remedy. So it's very unlikely that he would have said, go ahead and do this. Uh, Richard, uh, prior to the session, uh, you told me this is a wild crowd here. They're very eager to uh, discuss and ask questions. So uh, I'm already uh, getting uh, the jitters. Uh, and uh, to let the floor over to the audience. Uh, and before um, I do that, uh, I have one um, more question for you. Over the past few days, you have witnessed how the discussion in Denmark is raging about what transpired, what happened here, how, who, who did what. Uh, and the distance has not actually... Uh, softened out, but actually sharpened uh, the discussion on uh, who, when, where, why, for what reasons the moral standards have been sharpened once more. I wonder whether uh, a similar discussion is going on in your country, in the U.S., about what happened in those years. I mean, turned towards America and what the U.S. government did and what the civil society did uh, and how did we fare, fare back then? Did we do well enough? Did we do good enough uh, uh, back then? Uh, is that discussion uh, raging uh, as it is here? It is still going on. Uh, I mean, it, it really started probably at an earlier date. Uh, the, the first serious books on this topic came out in the 1960s, and um, debate has been repeatedly hot and heavy since then, and it's still going on. I mean, we've, we've had uh, a lot of reactions, uh, positive and negative, to uh, this book on Roosevelt, and uh, we've been getting large audiences. Thank you. Now I will turn uh, the floor over to you, and uh, uh, please, uh, I'll give you numbers, and you just stick with your numbers, and then I'll call the numbers. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, and six. And that, okay, seven. Number one. <laughs> Thank you very much for that number. <laughs> Don't take it personally. <laughs> My name is Bjorn Weddell. I'm a Danish writer and journalist. Thank you very much for a very uh, lecture. I can, in a way, understand the uh, American, the Americans trying to understand what kind of threat do we have here. Do we have a, a Nazi threat towards everybody, or do we have a specific threat towards the Jews? Um, I say that because I think we have a very disturbing uh, parallel today. Uh, when we and the Americans go in to Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, wherever in the Middle East, um, it is very harsh for the Christians. But we don't fight uh, wars for the Christians. So we don't even want to understand what we don't. We, we, we try to avoid even discussing it. 
the Danish Prime Minister has been asked several times, many times, uh, shouldn't we be very worried about what our interventions do to the Christians in the Middle East? And he always answers, we're not fighting for one particular group, we don't understand people in that way, we, we are fighting wars in general, against dictators, against lack of democracy, we were fighting wars in general, not, uh, not wars for, for Christians, for example. But the fact of the matter is that, it, that, that the Christians are really in trouble in the Middle East these days. And I say it also has to do with this question of why did the Danes rescue the Jews? I think uh, the, the, one of the, the reasons was uh, the way civil society worked uh, in Denmark. We didn't, uh, they didn't see them as Jews. I mean, this is kind of the, the paradox of the matter. They didn't understand these people as do they looked at them as countrymen of whatever faith it, it was. So, in, in a way, the energy, I mean, to do the rescue came from not understanding the Jews as Jews. Um, so this is, I, I just want to, to raise this question of this paradox, this dilemma. Thank you. Thank you. I, I'm not sure um, what part of that is a question. It's a, <laughs> an astute observation. Um, I, I, I guess I will say the following. Um, there were two issues for the Roosevelt administration. Uh, first of all, they really believed that Nazi Germany was a threat to all Western civilization. And so that, that was partly sincere. The second problem was that from the time he was elected, Roosevelt was attacked as being overly dependent on the Jews. The New Deal was described as Jewish radicalism. He appointed more Jews to administrative positions than any previous president. And so when you got to 1939 and the danger of war and uh, the outbreak of war, there were people saying very specifically this is the Jews. And if Roosevelt goes into the war, it's because of the Jews. And so from a political standpoint, the Roosevelt administration was trying to avoid giving evidence to people who were his enemies. And therefore, it made political sense to be stressing Nazism as a threat to all humanity and not singling out the Jews. And it took a lot of time and a lot of people working uh, until high government officials were willing to say, if we just fight the war and don't do anything else, there may not be all that many Jews left. And we may have to single them out in certain ways. And it really took a year of fighting through the government to, for that view to advance. And you know, you, you can, if you want, go through and pick out particular um, organizers and particular newspaper columnists and uh, particular uh, congressmen even as uh, advancing this view. And you can make them heroes and you can make their opponents uh, villains. But um, this is, this is I'm, I am going to bring a current uh, reference in here. 
Uh, no, Congress would never have done anything on its own. It's too easy to block action in Congress. We can see that uh, today. Um, so even if they had had a majority, which they didn't, uh, they would not have done anything on its own. This is why the internal efforts of the Treasury Department and the uh, presidential decision to establish a war refugee board were critical. There was no substitute for a committed, determined government agency uh, trying to save lives. There, there really was no other way. Thank you. Number two, the mic. Thank you, Curtis Senior uh, from the Bosnian Board of HIA. Uh, you've been consistently ahead of the questions I'm about to ask, so uh, so I'm just going to ask a bit of these. I was going to, I wanted to ask you about advocacy for bombing in Victoria uh, at Auschwitz once that became a technical possibility. You you talked about the executive branch, and that's that's where it was stymied. Was there an attempt to advocate that uh, either through Congress, and you just discussed that that, that alone wouldn't have delivered on, on, on the wider policy question, but also to the general public? Was it what, when, when that was halted, uh, when it was first proposed or brought to the attention, were there attempts to not take no for an answer? If this is a good question, and it is a question that we addressed in the book. Um, and it tells us something quite significant uh, about historical perception and how it changes over time. The notion of bombing Auschwitz was not a big issue in 1944. There were Jewish rallies, there were newspaper articles. You can't find evidence of anybody suggesting it in the public domain in the summer or fall of 1944. It was suggested behind the scenes. It was suggested from Switzerland. It was suggested by a junior official in the War Refugee Board. And it got to where it got, and it was rejected. And there were no protests. So this became a big issue, a missed opportunity, years later when people realized that uh, there were bombers in the same region, some going very near the camp and uh, in one, on one occasion dropping one bomb on the camp by accident and taking reconnaissance uh, photographs of the damage and so David Wyman published an article why Auschwitz was never bombed and made it seem like this was you know the critical failure of the American government um, well there were lots of failures of the American government and there were some successes of the American government Raoul Wallenberg's mission uh, counting partly among them and you, you kind of have to balance them off um, uh, perceptions changed over the decades and um, there were many other options at the time in addition to bombing Auschwitz. Thank you. Number three? 
The microphone, please. Thank you. My name is Pundik. I'm a journalist. Uh, I just want to comment shortly on what you said about uh, the bombing and the non-bombing uh, of uh, the destruction of the, of the camps. Uh, because there's a similar case uh, which has been documented uh, in English uh, war history, namely that Churchill was raided and uh, sent a message uh, to Eden saying, do what you can. Uh, and uh, Eden uh, thought that what he could do was zero. And Churchill never followed up. So uh, I don't know if there was anything, any uh, discussions uh, between the British and the Americans about coordinating the reply. Uh, I don't know if you know it, but anyhow, both, both sides sort of acted in the same way. But uh, I want to turn the focus a little bit uh, back from the Holocaust situation and the pre-Holocaust situation. Because as we all know, the Germans permitted Jews uh, to leave Germany almost till the 1st of September 1939. I'm just mentioning the St. Louis uh, story, which you probably know all about. Now, my question to you is the following. Uh, American immigrant policy was based on protests. <coughs> Uh, and at some point, uh, Stephen Weiss uh, or some of his assistants realized that uh, the Jewish quota for immigration to America had been uh, utilized to the full extent. Uh, but the number of quotas from other nations in Europe had not been used. And then uh, uh, Stephen Weiss or somebody else, uh, uh, turned to the American uh, administration and asked them to exploit the quotas which had not been used by the other nations, Italy and so on, uh, to use them for the purpose of bringing in Jews. Uh, now, the, the uh, reaction of the American administration was, of course, uh, uh, negative. I just want uh, to ask you, first of all, uh, uh, did I refer to this thing uh, authentically, or is it not uh, confirmed by your, by your sources? And secondly, if you can't confirm it, uh, what was the reason for not letting the Jews in uh, within the general quota of immigration uh, from Europe in these, uh, these days? Okay, I tracked three different questions there. One about the bombing of Auschwitz, one uh, about uh, the St. Louis, and one yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and one Just about go ahead, yeah. immigration. Just another fifty minutes. <laughs> no. Um, all right. So yes, the British also rejected uh, requests to bomb Auschwitz, and the paper trail goes much higher there. Um, with Churchill, I think you have to be careful uh, because Churchill was a historian as well as a politician. And so Churchill wrote a memo saying, get anything out of the Air Force you can, and created a record, and then never followed up. So um, did he really mean it? Um, perhaps, but he had other problems and went on to other things. Um, 
And it's the British military handled the situation the same way, independently, but the same way as the American military, and uh, their job was to win the war. All right. Um, the story of the St. Louis, I think I'm going to do that one last and do the immigration stuff first because that's a little easier. Um, there was no Jewish quota. The quota laws involved national quotas and uh, country quotas were determined by um, the percentage, ethnic percentage of the American population in the year 1890. It happened that um, Germany had a fairly large quota. It was 25,000 plus. And after Austria was amalgamated with Germany, it was more than 27,000. So that quota went unfilled until 1938, not for lack of demand, but because of State Department regulations particularly a clause called likely to become a public charge. Immigrants, potential immigrants, had to show that they could support themselves. And this was something, uh, regulation that uh, was stiffened during the Depression and it was only gradually loosened. And so Roosevelt had to deal with this Controversy uh, during his first term when it came up. Should Jewish refugees uh, be admitted into the country? And there was a fight between the State Department and the Labor Department over how to interpret this clause. And the Labor Department said, let's loosen it so more refugees can come in. And the Roosevelt administration didn't want an all-out battle with Congress and the State Department and didn't do much. And then that was the first Roosevelt, and then Roosevelt was re-elected in 1936. And at the time, he thought it was his last term. And suddenly came a new instruction to consuls in Europe that they were not supposed to reject people because they could conceivably become public charges, only those who were likely to become public charges. <laughs> and in addition, uh, German Jews had a lot of relatives in the United States, and their relatives were really concerned about them. And so suddenly, magically, German-Jewish immigration rose very um, substantially. And by 1938, the quota was filled. And so that gets us to the story of the St. Louis, which is, uh, along with the... Uh, no, uh, I want to know, oh, why, why did they not want to use the quotas which were different from other nations you, you in couldn't, order to you, aid the Jews to immigrate? You could not combine quotas from different countries. That was a modification of the law that would have had to, Congress would have had to approve that, and Congress would never have approved that. Just not possible under the law. The one thing that the Roosevelt administration did to stretch the quota law was after Kristallnacht. There were about 10 to 15,000 uh, Jews in the country on visitors' visas. And Roosevelt said, and the quota was already filled, and Roosevelt said, we're not going to send them back. Um, 
and that and he took flack from Congress for for doing that. He, they said it was illegal. Um, so um, the two stories that come up most frequently, the two alleged bookends of American reactions to before and during the Holocaust are the story of the ship, the St. Louis, and the issue of bombing the gas chambers. And from my perspective, they're both misunderstood and they're not really the symbols or the, the reality of American policies which changed a lot. So, um, the St. Louis was, how many of you are familiar with the story of the, the St. Louis? Not a lot, all right. What's your question now? Well, I want to I explain um, the story of the SS St. Louis and how it fits into American uh, policy. Um, St. Louis was a ship that sailed from Hamburg to Havana in May of 1939 with 937 German-Jewish refugees. Why were they going to Havana? They were going to Havana because most of them had American immigration applications in, but they were on a very long waiting list. They would not get into the United States for years. The Cuban government had decided to take advantage of this situation. How did that happen? Two days after Kristallnacht, Franklin Roosevelt met with Colonel Fulgencio Batista, the strong man of Cuba, in the White House. We don't have a record of that meeting. But immediately afterward, Batista went to New York and said he was very pleased to be cooperating with President Roosevelt in his effort to do something about the refugee problem in Central Europe. And so Cuban government officials, the Cuban consuls in Europe, began selling tourist visas to German Jews. They were not supposed to be valid for long-term stay, but the understanding was that they would be allowed to stay and the Joint Distribution Committee would support them in Cuba and they could wait for years for their turn to get into the United States. From November 1938 until May 1939, ship after ship sailed from Germany to Cuba with refugees. And then there was a backlash in Cuba Batista was not yet dictator. He was, you know, the strongest among several powers, but he was not distributing the proceeds widely enough among Cuban government officials. And there, there were complaints in the press about all of the Jews. And so while the St. Louis was en route, the Cuban government changed its policy and the ship was denied entry to Havana. The Joint Distribution Committee sent down a negotiator and the Cuban government kept raising the ante and asking for more money. And while the negotiations were in progress, the ship was sailing around the southern coast of Florida. The Coast Guard began to follow the ship. There is a myth 
that the Coast Guard was trying to prevent the ship from landing in the United States. Some of the surviving passengers still say that. They're wrong. These people could not get into the United States. They had no visas. There was yet, as yet, no such thing as political asylum under American law. That didn't come into effect until the 1950s. So even if they had landed, even if they had walked on the shore, they would not be allowed to stay. The Coast Guard was following the ship because Secretary of the Treasury Morgenthau had asked the Coast Guard to follow the ship because negotiations were underway. He wanted to be able to direct the ship to the right place once negotiations succeeded. Well, the negotiations in Cuba failed, but negotiations with Britain, France, Belgium, and the Netherlands succeeded, and all of the passengers went back to democratic countries in Europe in June 1939. If you took a poll of Americans who know about the St. Louis, most of Americans would say they were sent back to Germany and they were gassed. None of the passengers were sent, none was sent back to Germany. None was sent back to Germany. This was June 1939, it was before the war, it was long before there were any gas chambers. And so the passengers at the time were very thankful. Only later events caused about one third of them to lose their lives. Two thirds of them survived, half of them ultimately immigrated to the United States. And so you, I, I beg your indulgence for my telling the story of a, an event that is widely misunderstood. It's very good to set the record straight. Thank you for that. Now, I realize with five minutes left of the session that I have given out too many quotas. <laughs> uh, with, with such uh, long um, uh, questions and uh, detailed uh, answers. But let's try. We, we have to be sharp, right? Uh, quarter to three. So we have five minutes to go. Uh, number four and uh, number five next to you. So please be, uh, please, uh, be brief and written to. Today we heard about Karin um, speak about the um, the anti-Semitism and the hesitancy to bring in refugees. Uh, the considerations in Sweden. Cecilia, my colleague, uh, later mentioned that Europe traditionally was not on the receiving end of refugees. We were a continent that. Uh, ship people to the new world, and that was sort of our tradition in that sense. My question to you, uh, now that we're already speaking about uh, uh, the uh, immigration policies and quotas and all this, I'm curious about the substance of this American hesitancy as a country that used to be uh, country immigrants. What, is, what was the substance? What was the make of, of this hesitancy to receive uh, European refugees before the war? Uh, are, are we speaking about the, the anti-Semitism in the sense that we understand anti-Semitism, 
or are we dealing with socio-economic economical um, hesitancies of what a great amount of refugees would do to American society or something else? That is a very good question. I will answer it very One brief, too briefly. <laughs> um, Yes, anti-Semitism, yes, uh, changing economic and political conditions. The American immigration situation changed fundamentally in the 1920s when Congress passed new restrictive immigration laws. And they changed again in 1930 when the State Department decided to uh, toughen that regulation likely to become a public charge. So it wasn't explicitly anything to do with anti-Semitism, except that the quotas were based on racial, uh, a hierarchy of racial uh, values. And it was decided that long-time uh, immigrants to the United States were um, uh, of a higher quality than more recent immigrants, and so the national quotas were adjusted in the 1920s laws. Uh, and ironically, Germany had a relatively high quota because there were so many German immigrants to the United States during the 19th century. Thank you. It's very late, but I will uh, put my neck out for number five and apologize to number six and seven and uh, to ask them uh, to follow up with Richard after the session. I'll answer uh, questions privately. So, and, uh, so we can uh, compensate that way. Please go ahead. Hi, uh, I'm Iftar uh, from Yad Vashem. Um, if basically the answer is uh, Roosevelt, and let's say Church and Roosevelt, we are fighting a war, we won't do anything that will divert us. We do have examples say, of things that did, they did things that were uh, not helping them, let's say, win the war, let's say, in the Polish uprising in 1944, they did drop supplies, they knew probably a lot of it will fall in German hands, didn't really help them. The siege of Greece, uh, which three people died of hunger, so eventually Britain took out the, uh, uh, the siege. And maybe the reason they did that was political. They will think eventually, right, we'll get something from it. From the Jews, eh, we don't get really too much. It doesn't really matter. So that's uh, just to say, follow up. Uh, you're dealing with a State Department interpreting uh, what was necessary to win the war and what was desirable. And the State Department uh, was not sympathetic, generally. Uh, to spe specific measures to rescue European Jews. And one had to overcome the State Department in order to get something like the War Refugee Board. Wow, look at the watch. Um, well, being on time is an accomplishment too. Um, listen, I want to thank the audience. Uh, you were quite wild, but after all, uh, very well behaved. And uh, thank you for doing that. And Richard, uh, we can discuss whether governments delivered and how well they did. You did deliver, and thank you for that. Thank you.